Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, August 21st, and this is your FT News Briefing. A week after tougher U.S. sanctions, Huawei employees describe a state of war. As the number of Western bankers in Hong Kong shrinks, Chinese banks move their staff in. And around the world, what's going to happen to workers if there's no office to go to? I'm Dan Bobkoff, and here's the news you need to start your day. Staff at Huawei say it's like a state of war inside the company. Just last week, the U.S. announced tougher sanctions against the Chinese telecoms equipment company. Employees are now worried about possible layoffs as Washington cracks down on a number of Chinese tech groups. The new rules could cut off the supply of chips to the Chinese company. Insiders and analysts say the ban could put an end to Huawei's main smartphone and 5G equipment businesses. One Huawei employee asked on a company message board, if all microchips were restricted on August 17th, what products can we still make? Huawei declined to comment, and some employees interviewed by the FT say they become used to Washington's announcements and barely pay attention anymore. Hong Kong Stock Exchange enjoyed record profits in the first half of the year. It was a surprise beneficiary of rising tensions between the U.S. and China. Fears they might be forced to delist from U.S. exchanges has led Chinese tech companies to list billions of dollars of shares in the city. But there's another inflow into the territory. Chinese banks have been moving staff in as the number of Western bankers starts to shrink. Hudson Lockett, our Asia Capital Markets correspondent, has the details. Hong Kong has sort of become the primary listings destination offshore for Chinese companies. It lets them list outside of China's capital controls, which Shanghai can't do. It provides a safe jurisdiction, which New York no longer is. And it provides an opportunity to get dollar funding because the territory's pegged to the U.S. dollar. So it's really the best of all worlds right now. Traditionally, it was Western investment banks that really dominated the deals in Hong Kong. But you usually saw at least one Chinese investment bank on most of the big deals. Now, it's still true that Western investment banks are basically needed to sort of get bigger deals over the line because they are able to tap U.S. investor markets. But the presence of Chinese investment banks in Hong Kong is growing by the day, based on research that Jane Pong and I did for the FT. Since 2013, you've seen Chinese investment bankers go from less than 1,000 to more than 2,100, and that puts them only a few hundred behind their international banking counterparts. More than anything, the recent introduction by Beijing of a sort of sweeping national security law in Hong Kong has changed the game for a lot of folks. The impact of the security law is to make Hong Kong far less attractive for employees of international investment banks. Uh, It makes Hong Kong a lot more like the mainland. However, for Chinese investment banks, it actually clamps down on protests that last year targeted some of their retail outlets here in the city, like Bank of China. So for them, it's more of an upside. In a downturn, it is usually lower-skilled or unskilled workers who lose their jobs first. But there is evidence in this recession that management and office workers are also being hit. So could white-collar workers be more at risk this time? Andrew Hill, our management editor, is with us now. Hi, Andrew. Hi. 
So employers are often reluctant to fire highly skilled employees in a downturn as they are difficult to replace when things pick up again. And this has tended to save white collar jobs historically. But you had a rather interesting anecdote in your column this week about somebody who we will call Bob. Yeah, this was a story that emerged in uh, 2013. Bob was a software developer working for a big unnamed US firm and who used to work from home. And it turned out that he had been outsourcing his own job to China. He was sending a part of his salary to a Chinese consulting firm, which was essentially doing the software coding and programming for him while he surfed the web, watched cat videos and, um, and updated Facebook. So the code was good, except he wasn't the one who was doing the coding. What is the lesson about this anecdote for our current situation? Well, I suppose one reason why it was drawn to my attention was that there's a growing sense, you'd almost say it was a threat by some people who would prefer for employees to return to the office, that if you can work anywhere, then anyone can do your work. The company might just decide, well, why would I employ somebody in a very expensive area, be it New York or London uh, or any almost any developed country, when I could actually find somebody who could do the same job remotely in a cheaper jurisdiction? The risk here is that they might get outsourced and not do the outsourcing. Yeah, and I think this is compounded, of course, by the very real sense that companies are going to spend the next few months, possibly even years, trying to save money. And they're going to be looking at the most expensive items on their profit and loss account, which are often payroll. So finding some way of uh, reducing that cost, uh, even quite marginally, and adding perhaps some flexibility to the workforce might turn out to be rather attractive. So I'm talking to you at home. I take it that you're also at home, right? That's correct, yes. So uh, we are being flexible. And I wonder, how is this going to change office culture in the future? Do you think it might actually damage job security? Well, I like to think that we are more than just the sum of our marketable skills. Clearly, if you work already for an organization, you have some connections with other people in the organization that increase your value. And it's a cost when you get rid of somebody who has those connections and particularly for remote workers, try to induct them into an organization without any prior knowledge of how things work. Clearly, it can be done and is already being done. But I was surprised to find that, for example, in Silicon Valley, lots of companies prior to the pandemic were working with the skilled people that they found around them. And so it may well be that this has given a kind of boost to the idea, well, I might as well look elsewhere. And of course, there are companies out there, some of which I mentioned in the column, that are set up in order to try to make that easier for companies. Interesting. One of the findings in your piece is that as we sort of enter this kind of uneven recovery around the world, different countries are returning to the workplace in different rates. You say that in France and Italy, the majority of office staff have returned to their usual workplace, but that isn't the case in the UK where only a third have gone back. So do you think UK managers and office workers might be putting their jobs at risk by not returning to the office? I don't really see in a very tough economic climate that being present makes much difference. I think it ought to be to do with the quality of the work that you're doing and some of these collaborative ties that existing employees might already have set up. Which I think raises the question, is there evidence that people work more efficiently at home or, or in the office? 
Well, we're in the middle, obviously, of a massive experiment, which lots of uh, management academics are currently studying. Clearly, to assume that remote working is desirable and productive is to assume that everybody has the ideal remote working situation. Giving people the choice, I think, is the best way to improve productivity. And of course, that raises big questions about the future of the office and whether it will be sustainable to simply allow people to come in for a couple of days a week to the expensive real estate that uh, you bought or leased just before the pandemic. Well, Andrew Hill, I will mark you present for this interview. I uh, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Before we go, Uber and Lyft won a last-minute reprieve in California. A court pushed the deadline to October for the ride-sharing companies to reclassify their drivers as full employees rather than contractors. Lyft had earlier said it would cut off service in the state overnight. You can read more on all these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and Mark Filipino. The show is edited by me, Dan Bobkoff. We had help from Gavin Coleman, Michael Bruning, and Amy Keene. Our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Mark Filipino will be back in this chair next week. Have a great weekend. 